BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome, everybody, to The Pod's Honest Truth. Another fun-filled coronavirus weekend, by the way. I should mention this. Uh, I organized the sock drawer, so that was, uh, that was the apex right there. Uh, took a walk. Let's see. Uh, then I organized the Tupperware drawer. Then I took another walk. Uh, then went to the grocery store. That's now becoming a staple. That's like the highlight. Well, I guess the highlight was the sock drawer. But then I did go to the grocery store. Then I took another walk. And then I looked at the exercise DVDs. Then I walked away briskly. Yeah, that pretty much my weekend, folks. Uh, anyhow, I work and live in the Washington, D.C. area. So uh, it's worse here. Therefore, I think the shelter-in-place orders are going to last longer around here than in some other parts of the country. Now, of course, we know, as I reported for justthenews.com this past weekend, many churches are reopening over the weekend this past Sunday uh, for those in-person services. And I received a few comments from some evangelicals on my Twitter feed. uh, And here's some of what they had to say about how it went, because these are folks that actually uh, attended in-person services this past weekend. Marsha, I don't think she has a last name, just Marsha, says, quote, fabulous to worship together as a group, full house and lots of love, no social distancing. That's what she said. Uh, Michael saying this, my family and I attended an in-person service with, with social distancing, requested an optional masks. An announcement was made requesting that folks not bunch up in the lobby outside the sanctuary. I didn't observe any hugging or close contact by anyone. And then Shirley says, quote, it's not the same. We're doing social distancing, but it feels like you can't hug and you want to. You can't shake hands because we love them and want to protect them. So we do what our governor asks out of respect. I believe Jesus would have as well. And then finally, Gabriel or, or Gabrielle, sorry, excuse me, my bad, bad inflection. Uh, here's what she says, quote, it was amazing so fulfilling to be back at church with my brothers and sisters in Christ. The only thing different was more space between each other, even though they stream services and Bible studies. Nothing is better than being in church. Hey, uh, amen to that. That's the pod's honest truth, FYI. Hey, look, bottom line here is this. Uh, We now have to wait and see if this phased reopening of churches around America doesn't end up with new outbreaks, right? among the congregations. Imagine if that were the case. Oy gavolt, my Jewish upbringing, I can say it. So, you know, churches are trying to do this in a smart and safe way. We've talked about this, but they don't want their constitutional rights trampled on. However, folks, here's the news alert. If things don't go well and they go south, there's going to be a PR price to pay. So we're going to monitor that. All right. Uh, Today on the podcast, speaking with Matthew Dowd, political analyst from ABC News. Look, I've known Matthew a long time, going back to the Bush years. I've seen him in the green room at ABC's this week. He really runs the political spectrum. I mean, he's been a Democrat, then a Republican. Now he's an independent. Uh, He and I see uh, 
have a tip, typically a different take, if you will, when it comes to analyzing politics. Uh, so you're going to get a sense of that a little bit when you listen to the discussion in just a moment. We're going to talk about the state of the presidential race, the state of the never Trump movement in terms of uh, all of that going on. And also have evangelicals lost their witness by supporting Donald Trump? And oh, by the way, has the media lost their way in covering this president. Speaking of the media losing their way, can I go here for a moment? Sorry, I brought a soapbox. I know I shouldn't. You know what? Let me put the soapbox away and just go with the facts because we are just the news.com and it is all about the facts. Folks, we're in a very scary place when it comes to journalism in this country. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about something that I saw over the weekend. It was on CNN, Jake Tapper, State of the Union. Uh, but first, some perspective before we get into that. You know, in Christianity, we understand God to be the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? A three-for-one package deal. Uh, best one you're ever going to find, by the way. Uh, in journalism, there's a different tr trinity. You've got the correspondent now, the pundit and the activism spirit, because the combination of all three has really led to what I like to call the age of the correspondent. You know, we've heard for a long time how the mainstream media is not just overtly liberal, but they're also covertly liberal. And it's also increasingly clear that Americans do not trust the media. So then Trump comes along, exposes them like never before. He throws down the gauntlet. The press is angry. They feel like the victim. They feel beat up on a, a daily by this guy. And so many are finally revealing their true colors and they're fighting back in the media against this unconventional president. Basically, can I say it? I mean, it's a bit violent, but I'll say it. He gave them a punch in the face. They don't like it. And so it's led to this intense battle and it's resulted in the birth of what I call the correspondent. All right, so here we go. Enter Jake Tapper this weekend. I want to play you an eight-minute exchange with Republican Senator Ron Johnson from this weekend. Now, as you listen, I want you to see if you can pinpipe, uh, pinpipe, pinpoint, hello, all of the times that Jake Tapper morphed from anchor into correspondent. Remember, an anchor this just in, supposed to be asking challenging questions, but not bringing a soapbox to work. All right? Let's play the audio and then jot down the times that Tapper goes off the deep end into correspondent land. Here we go. In 2016, the same time the U.S. was investigating Russian interference in the 2016 elections, several members of the Obama administration requested the name of a U.S. citizen who appeared in various intelligence reports. Uh, this person in the cases that you've cited turned out to be General Flynn. It's called unmasking. It's not un uncommon. Um, you praise the director of national intelligence uh, for his transparency in declassifying these names. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to also push for transparency when it comes to the transcripts of these calls, especially the calls between General Flynn and Russian Ambassador Kislyak, who seem, that seems to be part of this. Have you asked for those transcripts to be released as well? Not yet, but we just really began our investigation in this particular aspect. This, Jake, this is one piece of the puzzle. I'm all for transparency. I think we way overclassify information. And as a result, there's all kinds of wrongdoing that can occur. And the American public never has a clue about what's happening. But what I'm very heartened by is we finally have a, a logjam broken in terms of Congress getting information to conduct our oversight. You know, I've been on this case really in some, some way, shape or form since March 2015 with the Hillary Clinton email scandal, which kind of morphed into the whole Russian collusion because the same, the same cast of characters. But what just got released, because I had a staff member that went down into the secure area of the Senate, went through the FISA report in, with a fine-tooth comb, found four footnotes that completely rebutted the main text of the FISA report, showing that the FBI knew full, full well 
that the Russian disinformation was actually part of the Steele dossier and the FBI knew it. The FBI knew full well that there was no collusion by the end of January, and yet they engineered through James Comey the, the appointment of a special counsel. Right. There is an awful lot of unanswered questions that need to be answered, and it's going to require transparency, yes. So I am all for transparency. I think the American people need to deserve and hear the full truth, and that's what I'm going to try and get. Okay, so in addition to the transcripts, which hopefully you will push for to be released as well, um, I'm wondering, did you also ask to declassify the reports that justify why these unmaskings were requested and approved? Because just listing the names and the dates, we don't, and, and the fact that it, it, it resulted in the unmasking of General Flynn, we don't know what this is about. Obviously, he was an unregistered foreign agent for Turkey at the time. He later registered uh, retroactively. So there are a whole bunch of questions that people might have had. Are, are you going to ask for, for that to be released as well, the justifications? Yes, I want all this information to come out. One thing we have found out is that the FBI was ready to close the file on General Flynn on January 4th uh, because they had found nothing. I mean, you mentioned all those other possibilities, but they didn't find anything wrong, so they're going to close the file until the seventh floor. That's James Comey's office, kind of called down, talked to Peter Strzok and said, hey, let's keep this open. Then they start talking about the Logan Act, and apparently President Obama was aware of this as well. So there are an awful lot of unanswered questions. Going back to the text that I continue to highlight, December 15, 2016, struck text page, think our sisters are leaking like mad, scorned, worried, and political. They're kicking into overdrive. Our committee conducted a, a, a study, showed 120, mm -hmm. 125 leaks in the first 126 days. 62 had to do with national security. That compares with eight under the Obama administration. Something is amiss here. Something was going wrong. I don't know exactly what happened, but we're getting a clear picture of it. I think the chickens are coming home to roost, and hopefully myself with the, hopefully other senators, Chuck Grassley's exactly been a real partner, we'll get to the exactly truth. Is, uh, look, obviously there, there are questions about FBI behavior. Peter Strzok uh, was fired, uh, Lisa Page resigned, et cetera. James Comey's no longer on the scene, but, but what exactly are you alleging uh, by the Obama administration? Because I have yet to see any facts at all uh, supporting this grand conspiracy that the Trump administration is pushing? Well, well, Jake, it's because a lot of members of the media haven't been asking the questions, haven't been looking. You know, let's face it, uh, there, were, there were selective leaks. They ramped up this entire Russian collusion hoax, and it was a hoax. And who's the recipients of these leaks? It was members of the media, about, about, 18, so, about 18 different because outlets. There, what, there, I, what, I, what I'd sorry, love to see is I'd like to see members, I would like to see members of the press actually start looking into all these leaks and how this story got spun up that resulted in a special counsel and put this country through about three years so of a, a mini-constitutional crisis. That's what I'd like to see. Senator, it's, it's not a hoax that the Russians attempted to interfere in the 2016 election. Yes, they did. You they, know that. They, it's they, not they, a hoax. They, they put Russian disinformation into the Steele dossier that was bought and paid for through cutouts now, for the they, Hillary Clinton campaign. That is what we found out, Jake. Sir, you got to look at the evidence. Look at those footnotes. That I'm, not dis I'm not disputing it. I'm not disputing it. I'm not disputing it. The idea that we don't know what was in this Steele dossier uh, but, but in, and how it got there and whether it was disinformation. But that's not what I'm talking about. You're suggesting that the entire Russia interference campaign was a hoax, and it was not. The Senate Intelligence Committee, run by a Republican, has concluded it was not. Every single inspector general uh, of the intelligence community and of, of now, all these agencies Jake, has said the, the it hoax, was not a hoax. The, the hoax Russians was, were trying to interfere. The, the hoax is that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. The disinformation that Russia 
couldn't the 2016 campaign flow through the Steele dossier and Hillary Clinton? No, I'm, I'm not denying that Russia tried to intervene in our election. They've been doing it probably s since their founding. Uh, that's what they do. I'm, I'm chairman of the force. Right, can we get back to unmasking, though? Sure. If we could get back to unmasking for a second. So unmasking, as you know, uh, is not uncommon. It happens. Uh, I'm sure you also know that unmasking has actually increased under the Trump administration am, yeah. uh, compared to the Obama administration. Uh, against, again, there's nothing nefarious with it. Uh, people charged with national security want to see who individual Russians and others who are talking, they're talking to unnamed Americans. They want to know who the Americans are. Uh, that's, there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. If this is something that can be abused, something you're concerned about, are you using any of your oversight capacity to investigate what the Trump administration is, is doing as well? Almost 17,000 uh, unmasking requests in 2018. Right. I saw that report that under Obama's last couple of years, it was under 10,000. And now the last couple of years, it's, it's been 16, 17,000. And that troubles me. So absolutely, I'm going to be looking into that. I want to know exactly what happened. You know, is it usual and customary for, for uh, the inner circle within the White House to be requesting unmasking, or is this primarily done within the intelligence agencies? I want to get all that information. Uh, I want the American people to hear the full and complete truth. The last thing is, sir, you have not made the allegation that the Trump administration is making, which is that President Obama committed crimes. You haven't said anything along those lines. But your work, your requesting of this information uh, of uh, the national, uh, the director of national intelligence, Rick Grinnell, uh, and again, I'm, I'm pro-transparency, true, release it all. But your work is being cited as, an as uh, evidence for this crackpot conspiracy theory. Does that bother you? Well, again, you keep calling it crackpot conspiracy theory. I'm just trying to find out what happened. What I do know, because we finally got these uh, records out of the National Archives, what President Obama saw when he got those uh, uh, emails from Hillary Clinton was not HillaryClinton.Senate uh, or StateDepartment.gov.classified. It was ClintonEmail.com. President Obama knew she was using a private server, and Section 793F, the, the section that I think okay. that, that I, I think Hillary it. Clinton violated, also includes knowledge okay. of misuse of intelligence. So I've always thought okay. that was one, one of the main reasons they covered up for Hillary Clinton and, and exonerated her. Okay. All right, Senator just Johnson, truth, stay healthy. Truth, I really appreciate your time. All right, so let's break this down. First off, uh, how about that whole exchange about the Russia hoax there at the end? Tapper ha had to basically go out of his way to use a Democrat talking point about how this was not a hoax. Now, of course, once Rob Johnson says the hoax had to do with the Trump campaign colluding with Russia, well, then Tapper quickly changes the subject because he knows that Johnson is right. There was no collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. So that was that whole kerfuffle at the end. Now, secondly, Tapper says unmasking is, quote, no big deal. He says it's not uncommon. Those were his exact words. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. What about the vice president of the United States, Joe Biden, doing this just days before he was set to leave office? I mean, does Tapper not think that this was maybe, oh, I don't know, a bit unusual? Or how about even worthy of questioning? There's no curiosity about that whatsoever. No, instead, Jake Tapper, more concerned about getting to the bottom of the transparency when it comes to the calls between Michael Flynn and his counterpart, the Russian ambassador. So that's exactly what the Democrats are saying. And it came out of the mouth of Jake Tapper. And then third, this is what Tapper says about the Obama administration involvement in the whole Russia spine saga. This is what he said, quote, I have yet to see any facts at all supporting this grand conspiracy that the Trump administration is pushing. By the way, don't you love how Tapper calls it a grand conspiracy? 
that that this is what the media does, right? They try and throw it into the conspiracy category to get themselves off the hook for asking tough questions. And by the way, later on in the interview, I don't know if you heard, but it, but Tapper called the whole thing, quote, a crackpot conspiracy theory. Now, of course, Ron Johnson responded perfectly. He said, the media isn't asking questions about all of this. And so that's why more facts haven't come out about this, at least not yet. Anyhow, number four, Tapper, Jake Tapper, brings up the unmasking efforts by the Obama administration. All right. But then he pivots and says, well, look, if you want to talk about unmasking, let's talk about the Trump unmasking efforts. He totally changed the subject. Finally, I love how the interview ends, right? Ron Johnson starts to bring up the issue with all of Hillary Clinton's secret emails. What happens? Well, we've got Jake Tapper starting to bumble around. Uh, we have to go. Uh, we're r running out of time now. Uh, really, got, I'm getting the rap. Uh, I gotta go. I mean, that's what he did. He was like, oh, so n now all of a sudden they have no more time after Hillary Clinton's emails come up there at the end. That is sad, or as Trump would say, sad with an exclamation point. Look, folks. What we have here is two inherent dangers, all right? The first is a president calling the media the enemy of the people. Uh, the, look, America's founding fathers believed so much in the freedom of the press that they made it part of the First Amendment of the Constitution. It's a key element, and it, it's really what sets the United States apart from many other countries. However, we also have to recognize that the danger of the media here is when it comes to embracing these correspondents. In other words, it creates confusion and leaves Americans wondering what's fact, what's spin. And that should give all of us pause, including journalists. We see it play out at the White House. We have these White House correspondents and they're turning the briefing room into their own soapbox derby. Uh, how about Jim Acosta? Remember that uh, from CNN? Uh, he was actually in the White House briefing room and he offered advice. That's right, that's right. Jim Acosta offering advice to White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders saying, quote, I think it would be a good thing if you were to say right here that the press are not the enemy of the American people. Anyhow, so afterwards, when Sarah Sanders decided not to say that, uh, he said he was tired of all this. He was complaining to Wolf Blitzer. Uh, then he morphed into activist mode, saying that maybe we should uh, make some bumper stickers and go out on Pennsylvania Avenue. And all journalists, he said, quote, should go out on Pennsylvania Avenue and chant, we're not the enemy of the people. I mean, what in the world is going on here, folks? He's a White House correspondent. I have no problem with him doing that. If you're an analyst, uh, if, you're, if you're in public policy, if you're an advocate, you know, knock yourself out. You are a journalist. Why are you telling people and journalists to go out and protest in the streets of D.C.? Look, I like Jim, actually, uh, not trying to pick on him. There are countless other correspondents that do get on Twitter and provide jabs, barbs, just downright uh, snarky comments um, against Trump and this White House. Look, I I've done it at times, too. I'm an analyst, and, and I make clear that there's a difference between being an analyst and a correspondent. If you notice, when I'm on justthenews.com, I'm providing correspondent uh, stories, uh, straight down the middle stories. When I provide analysis for CBN, it's different. I'm providing analysis. I am able to see the distinction there. Uh, and look, many cover their beat by day. Many of these reporters cover their beat by day and then show up at night in prime time and they're critical Trump uh, pundit. So the bottom line is what we're seeing uh, transpire during the Trump presidency is how probing, relentless questioning has really turned into slanted opinion journalism. I mean, aren't White House correspondents supposed to be covering the facts of the story rather than providing their opinion? I mean, isn't Jake Tapper supposed to be an anchor 
who stays away from analysis and opinion and just plays it straight. Anyhow, the result, folks, is the lines have been blurred in today's media landscape. So if you're a beat reporter, guess what? Stick to reporting. Leave the uh, analysis to the analyst. You can't be both. When correspondents turn into correspondents, their actions just confirm the media bias that they insist they don't have. We're back in a moment with ABC News political analyst Matthew Dowd on The Pod's Honest Truth. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And welcome back, everybody, to The Pod's Honest Truth with David Brody. All right, time now for our interview with Matthew Dowd. He currently serves as chief political analyst for ABC News. He appears on ABC This Week, Good Morning America, all the ABC News platforms. Uh, He used to be chief strategist uh, for uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in California. And, of course, we know him from uh, the 2000 era, if you will, President George W. Bush. He advised George W. Bush. And also, by the way, he's also been an advisor to Bono and Bill and Melinda Gates and their foundation out there. So he has run the gamut. Look, he was a Democrat. He's been a Republican. He's now an independent. Uh, But here's the common theme through all of that. He's just a genuinely good guy. And yes, Matthew and I disagree at times, check Twitter. Uh, But beyond that, look, bottom line is he's trying to be a light out there uh, in the world, especially the political world. And I want you to hear a little bit of our conversation. So here we go. State of the race. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about evangelicals and Trump. We'll talk about his faith journey, the media and division in this country. Here is the one and only Matthew Dowd. Matthew Dowd, thanks for joining me here on the Pod's Honest Truth. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Great to be with you, David. Well, let me ask you, a state of the race uh, or state of the crazy virtual race, I mean, what in the world is this going to look like, Matthew? Any sense of, uh, you know, Joe Biden's in, in, in his basement and doing virtual stuff, but he's got to get out at some point, you would think, or maybe he doesn't. I mean, what, where does this race kind of stack up at this point? Is there any sense of how this might go or it's just too crazy out there at this point? Well, I think if if people are the most honest um, about much of what's going on, they would say, I have no idea. Uh, and and I don't know is probably the best response in this. I mean, we've never been through something like this, obviously, in our lifetimes. I don't know if we've ever been through it in, in modern history in American politics. Um, I mean, before the, the pandemic hit, um, it was going to be a close race. I think after the pandemic hit and the economy has suffered, it's going to be a close race. Uh, but where things stand in the fall and how campaigns are actually able to function, I don't think we know. I don't think we know where where we're going to be in, in the virus. I don't think we're going to know with what people are going to feel like is appropriate for them to gather in normal political crowds. Um, so I think what we're going to see is a very different campaign. I think there's going to be some uh, whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden are going to try to do some traditional things. I don't know how that's going to work um, exactly. Um, but I think I have an expectation just watching 
the president's approval number for the last three years. Um, I think he is slightly, he's slightly behind the eight ball in this race. Uh, presidents usually have to have an approval rating um, at 50 or more to get reelected. But again, we're in an untraditional time in a disruptive moment um, that it's hard to predict exactly what's going to happen. You know, Matthew, it's in my intention all along that uh, Joe Biden might be better served if he goes with the government calling card. And, and typically, you, you don't want to do that. You run against Washington. But, but in this case, because of everything that's gone on with coronavirus and the fact that we have a lot of folks listening to state uh, officials and getting their guidance from the CDC and all of that, it seems like Joe Biden has a card to play from a government perspective here to say, look, uh, Trump has no clue what he's doing. I've been around since Reconstruction, if you will, and I know government really well. And so that's why you have to go with me because, you know, I know the levers and I can take I can do what the federal government needs to do in this situation. Is that a card for him to play? I think we're I think we're in a time where this campaign is going to be focused on competence and ability mm -hmm. to gather the resources of the government at many different levels, not only the federal level, but the state and the local level. So I think having experience in that realm is helpful in this moment, as opposed to in in three and a half years ago when when there was a frustration about what the government was. I think he, Joe Biden has to be careful. I think it works really well with certain age groups. I, I don't know if people, voters under 40, um, I don't know if this has actually made it worse for them and how much they trust the government in this. So I think by the way he does that, he's going to have to say, listen, I have experience and all that, but I know we're in a new time and we have to adapt new, new, new policies, new technologies, new things to meet the moment. But I do think, by and large, having experience and and running the campaign on competence to deal with not only the virus, the virus and the economy have now become intertwined. And I think it's going to be a question of competence simultaneously on both. How do we emerge from this fall of the economy and, and rebuild it? And then what do we do going forward and how we handle this health crisis? So, as I say, I think experience... This time is an asset, but I think you have to be careful in how you talk about it. You know, Matthew, you're, you, you're just one of the top political operatives in the country. You know this deal. And I'm wondering about how Biden potentially goes about um, winning a general election as it relates to the two. It, it seems to me the two ways he can go about this. Go the blue-collar working class uh, white voter, if you will, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, he needs those folks. But, but there's this other school of thought that, you know, engage the millennials, uh, suburban women, African American minority group. What, what's your sense of, of his best play here to get to, uh, to get to 270? Do you have a sense there? Well, I think it's, I think when these campaigns and having done them before, and the, 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 the last big one was the 2004 Bush election, um, was it's a chessboard with multiple pieces. And so I, I think oftentimes the media tries to put this into one category, like he needs to go after soccer moms or he needs to do, uh, he or she needs to do, you know, turn out, uh, people of color. And everybody right. seems to argue from a point, a vantage point of one sex. Well, when you look at the math, you have to add up where you have an expectation 
that you can get votes from. And that comes from many different places. It comes from white working class. It comes from uh, minority turnout. It comes from older voters. It comes from women. And I, so I think you have to be able to move the pieces around the board, multiple pieces around the board successfully, especially in this moment. I think this, the, the election is going to be close. Um, it may not be close nationally uh, in a popular vote, but it's going to be close in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Florida and Arizona. Um, and so all of those places are, there is, there is various ways to build a coalition to get to the winning margin, and it's going to come from a lot of different voters. And so just concentrating on one isn't going to work. Um, I mean, I've always been a big believer in that you have to both do motivate your base, whether you're coming from Donald Trump's vantage point or Joe Biden's vantage point, motivate your base and persuade persuadable voters. There was this misread of 2004 that we somehow only did motivation of base. That's just not true. We did both persuasion of, of, of voters that we thought we could get that were independent or, or soft dim. Um, mm-hmm. And then we did motivation of the Republican base. And you have to be able to do both of those things. Matthew, let me ask you, uh, as a relates to Biden, I've interviewed him before. I know him a little bit. I mean, he's a good guy. I mean, he's just, he's just, you know, salt of the earth type, type guy. But the Joe Biden of four years ago, eight years ago, doesn't seem to be the same Joe Biden today as it relates to, I mean, I'm just going to say it, the mental acuity. I mean, the, he, he calls himself a verbal gas machine. I mean, those are his words. But it seems to have gone up more. And I know the Trump campaign is trying to capitalize on that, which could be kind of dangerous in itself because, I mean, my goodness, if the guy does have some issues as it relates to age and mental health, I mean, who knows what's going on there? That's, that's dangerous. But what's your sense of Biden in terms of the, um, the mental acumen here? Because it, it, he does seem different. I mean, I just have to say that. He does. Well, I, I met Joe Biden for the first time. I met him in Texas in 1987 when he was running for president, one of the first time he ran for president, um, which sure. was 30 something years ago. Um, he was a gas machine. He was a gas <laughs> machine. He was a gas machine there. And people forget, you know, he had to end up dropping out of the race, um, in that race for some of the gaps and some of the things that happened and, and all of that. Very good speaker, and as you say, I think he's a fundamentally decent human being, a decent man, a good person. Uh, but he's been a gas machine. Obviously, anything as as one goes and through the decades of their life, um, things um, happen. They might forget things. We all do, and all of that. But I don't think he's fundamentally, in my view, having been around him, uh, fundamentally a different person. And I would be surprised, this is my viewing point, that the, that the Trump campaign really wants to run this campaign on a referendum either on mental acuity or moral fitness. I would be shocked if the Trump campaign wants to make that, uh, that, that upon which this campaign <laughs> is fundamentally decided. Um, I don't, I don't think that's a good place for them in either way. I mean, both of these candidates are gas machines. Both of these candidates have a tendency to say things. Um, Joe Biden apologizes for more them more often than Donald Trump, but doesn't mean he makes them more often um, than Donald Trump. So I think in the end, it's one of these places, on whether it's on social media or sometimes on cable news, I don't think that's fundamentally what this race is going to be decided upon. Um, I think we're in such a of such a uh, crisis moment on the economy and this health, cri- health crisis 
that I don't think that is what the campaign is going to be decided on. So you think it'll be decided on Trump's response to the coronavirus and this reopening and how it goes? I think it's going to be re-elections are always primarily about the incumbent. So Donald Trump's going to try to make it about Joe Biden um, as much as he possibly can. But it's going to be fundamentally about that. I think a lot depends on where is the economy in September and October of this year? Where does it stand? And where are we in handling the the health crisis, the pandemic that we're here? And both of those things, I mean, if I were giving advice to Donald Trump, I would say forget about Joe Biden and do the best job you can on the economy and this health crisis. Do as much as you can and solve the problem and deal with it as much as you can and forget the politics for the next three or four months. I know he's not going to listen to this, but that's what I would do. Because fundamentally, his his reelection is going to be dependent on how he handles both of those things. Matthew, you mentioned morality. That transitions me over to Trump and evangelicals. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You've been critical. I, I think it's probably fair to say, you know, what in the world are, <laughs> are evangelicals thinking? I try to kind of lay it out uh, as to what their Dr. Phil issues here are in terms of how they get to yes on Trump. Um, but but what, what's what's your biggest concern as it relates to not just evangelical support for Trump, but maybe in the macro as it relates to the culture and, and what this means going forward in in politics and the culture uh, writ large? Well, David, you and I have had conversations um, both uh, in the green room and outside the green room about this. We're both people of faith, um, yeah. both people of faith, both it's very important to us. I have come to a place. Um, and regardless of party, and as you know, I'm an independent, regardless of party, I think the voters should put the biggest premium on integrity, integrity of the, of the leader and honesty of the leader and whether or not the leader lives the life of, of what they think and what they say and what they do are in alignment on a place of integrity. And I have a, a and I understand why there's certain parts of Donald Trump that People from the faith community or the evangelical community are attracted to. But to me, the fundamental decision for any person of faith or really any person of humanity ought to be, is this leader a person of integrity? And that's where my biggest criticism has been of people of faith um, in this moment is, is decide, is this person somebody that you trust? Is this person somebody that you believe? Is this person somebody that you think has integrity, that lives a life that you would have some pride in. And that, to me, is more important than policy. Yeah, no, and, and I totally get that. What about this, uh, you know, to push back on the devil's advocate view that, hey, look, we're, we're not electing a pastor in chief. And, yeah, he's, he's more than rough around the edges. He's got all sorts of, of issues, uh, obviously. But, you know, hey, we're, we're just going for someone who is is someone that is voting for our Policies, so you know it's kind of interesting because in the macro, I think evangelicals go to the macro issue, as in we don't—they don't want to be silent in their voice within politics and the public sphere, if you will. Uh, so they figure, rather than be silent, they have to vote for what they believe are biblical values, and integrity might be—you know—how uh, do I say this? That might be a problem on one side for Trump, uh, but when he's a—he's a pro-life. Uh, or a president that's promoting pro-life policies and he's promoting a lot of evangelical checklist items. How do you, how do you reconcile that when, when you've got integrity on the one side and public policy on the other? 
so I'm I'm a I'm I'm a big believer that that we shouldn't apply ends justify the means to politics. Uh-huh. I know there's been a long history of quoting Machiavelli uh, and um, what we need to do in politics, but I actually think what's broken in politics are the means, and part of the means is the type of leaders we elect. I believe that if you if the means are correct, if the means have integrity, and if you have decent people of good values uh, in leadership, whether they're a Democrat, Republican, Independent, Liberal, Conservative, whatever, the ends are going to be good. And so when you start sacrificing um, the means in order to get to a certain end, I think that's when it becomes exceedingly problematic. I mean, it gives people permission to do a lot of things that I think degrade society in order for somebody to get to the end that they want. I have often said to people um, that <laughs> Jesus Christ was all about the means. Jesus Christ was all about the means. He would basically say, forget about you know, getting to heaven, forget about the, you know, what, what you think is in the afterlife, forget about that, do the right thing now, do the right thing now, love your neighbor, love God, do the, do the, take care of the poor, do the things you need to do now, and the ends will take care of themselves. I believe that's what we should be looking for in politics. And as I say, when you basically start saying we'll accept almost any means, whether they're corrupt, incompetent, lacking truth or whatever, in order to get to this end that we think we is the good, I think then that's when society and democracy starts falling apart. Matthew, you're, you're a faithful believer, a faithful Christian. Uh, tell, tell me about your faith and how important that is to you. And how it seems like it really has lived out in your life because of some of the, 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 the entrepreneurial um, business ventures that you've gone into and in trying to kind of help as it relates to culture, culture social, and moral issues. Uh, and, and helping those along the lines. So my faith, I mean, I, 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 I believe it was a gift, um, as faith is. Um, I, I, for some reason, felt that gift very young. Um, I grew up, you know, Catholic in Michigan, Irish Catholic in Michigan, <laughs> went to Mass, was an altar boy, um, did all of that. It was, be, it was a very important part of it. I would have conversations about it. I actually thought in high school for a time about becoming a priest, um, in, in, for a, for a, for a while, I quickly learned that you can't be married if you have a, can't be married or have a girlfriend if you're a priest. Um, so that, that became, uh, not part of my plan. Um, I, I obviously read every day. I read from scripture every day. I try to be informed. I make mistakes. I'm, uh, I'm a human being that has, has erred and, and done wrong in my life. I seek forgiveness. Mm-hmm. From not only God but from others. That when I when I do that, I will continue to make mistakes. Um, it's important to me. I understand everybody has a different path up the mountain. Um, I'm not a person that believes my path is the only way up the up the mountain um, into a place where you embrace the divine. There's many different paths uh, up that mountain, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Native American culture, Christianity, Catholicism, Protestant. Protestantism, Judaism, Islam. I think there's many paths, but for me, my faith, I rise with it in the morning and I sleep, go to sleep with it in the evening. Um, it's carried me through a lot of, uh, very tough times having, you know, yeah. lost a daughter, you know, lost a sister, lost all that. It's my faith that I, that held me together in that moment. So I don't know where I would be without it, but I also understand 
why that's not a place where some people are. Um, but I do believe in openness, forgiveness, and understanding of others as they walk this life. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Matthew. I, two quick questions, then we're done on media. And, and I, I hate to use the over uh, simplified term media bias, but one thing Trump has done, I mean, we, we, we knew that there was a liberal bent to the media before. There's no doubt about that. I don't think anybody will dispute that. Uh, but Trump, Trump seems to have exposed this in, in, in very interesting ways because I, I call it we're in the age of the correspondent. Uh, because you're a correspondent, but at times you're a pundit as well. Not to talk about Jim Acosta, but, you know, folks like that um, who seem to just kind of, you know, what's the line? The line seems to have blurred quite a bit in the media landscape today. Trump seems to have everybody choosing sides uh, here. It seems even more so today. What's your take on the state of the media t- today? Well, um, I, I, so I think the media – serves the media, just to call it general, in a general way, serves it, and the news news media, it serves a great purpose. We obviously yeah. need it. Every Our founders talked about it, Jefferson, and everybody talked about how it was important because people have to be informed and we have to have some common set of facts and the media is part of providing that. So I think they provide a huge important, unique uh, role in, in our democracy. I also believe, and I have fault for the media on this, I think there's way too much hyperbole in the media, I think there's not enough just presentation of facts, you uh, know, in, in a just very dry, and I, even, I know it doesn't get eyeballs or listeners and all in a dry way. I watched this pandemic and the virus where people seem to have a viewpoint and then they go and find stuff to, in order to serve that viewpoint. I, I would wish that we could have data and information and knowledge drives that that thing, and so my, um, I think cable has been a has been a lot part of the problem. This because they have to fill up 24 hours a day, and part of that they don't feel like they can give you know factual, just factual basis for things throughout the day. And I think this whole idea of food fights, they of of bringing together just people to throw food at each other at the table because somebody comes to the left or somebody comes from the right and they're just going to create quote unquote good television. I don't think serves uh, the public well, but I think all of us should have a desire for the news media to present things in a factual way, to present it to the public and not in a hyperbolic way that either causes people to be more afraid or more angry or more frustrated or more of those things, because I don't think it serves the country. Very nice. And final question on division in this country. Uh, yeah, good luck on this in, in a minute or less. But, uh, you know, how in the world do we heal, start to heal some of the fracture and division in this country, uh, politically, culturally, morally? But, uh, you know, to, to me, it just seems like we're, we're just on two different islands here. And, you know, I, I just, I just wonder if there's really any, any solution exactly. As Rodney King would say, can't we all just get along? And it's not been quite that way at all. Um, well, I, I actually think what we have is two islands and a big mainland, and the two islands are getting listened to more than the mainland. Um, in hmm. this, and, the, and the mainland is basically just your average person out there who isn't, who isn't very left and who isn't very right, um, who goes about their day, um, who tries to do the right thing, and they don't often get heard uh, in this environment, whether it's by cable news or other people. And so, to, and those are the people that understand that the only way this changes is if in the circles of our life, we start acting better. And in the circles of our life, 
we start listening to people that are different than ours. And in circles of our life that we start, we stop impugning people's intention and start understanding where they come from and why they might, why they might like Donald Trump or why they might like Joe Biden and what is driving that reason to try to understand it from there. But the only way it works is if we're doing it at the grocery store and we're doing it at the hardware store and we're doing it at the cafeteria when we can go. Um, and once that starts happening and people start doing that, it's not going to change. Things never change from the top down. They always change from the bottom up and they always change from out in the middle of the country. And they, and then all of a sudden leaders recognize I got to change. So they follow where the country is going. So we have to lead them. We the people. Gotcha. <laughs> Great. Matthew Dowd, uh, a real pleasure to talk to you today. And, and thanks for being a bright light out there. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. You too. Always great to talk to you. That is Matthew Dowd here on the Pod's Honest Truth. Look, you may disagree with 50% of what Matthew Dowd had to say. Maybe you disagree with 100%. Maybe you agree with all of it. Look, whatever the case, we all need to strive to do better and come together. Ronald Reagan once said this, if we love our country, we should also love our countrymen. Hey, look, I agree. Is it easy? No. Have I failed? Yes. Is it a constant battle? Yes. We're fighting for a set of values in this country that we believe should reign supreme. That's a battle and a fight worth having. Nobody's saying each side shouldn't continue to fight for what they deem to be important. That misses the point. But can we fight with honor? Can we fight without the vitriol from both sides? Folks, can we fight without the degradation? Has Donald Trump been guilty of that? Um, yeah, 18 font, all bold. But also, let's not forget Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables or Barack Obama's talk of how people cling to their guns and religion. Both political parties are guilty of grouping people together. So let's stop casting blame on others and worry about our own conduct. In other words, let's look inward. That's a great place to start. And also, that's the Pod's Honest Truth. Until next time, America.